Well, I'm very thankful to be together on this Palm Sunday. This, as you know, is our holy day to remember Jesus fulfilling the words of the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, chapter 9, he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so even today, we echo the words that they sang on that first Palm Sunday, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And all God's people said, Amen. What, what joy and privilege we have of even uttering such words. And I trust you're also looking forward to coming out uh, on Good Friday. We know well that we must reflect on the cost of the cross to appreciate the power of the resurrection. I know we're all looking forward to Easter, but, but remember, skipping Good Friday's worship is like celebrating a Super Bowl win, but not actually watching the game. We have Good Friday to look forward to. This time of worship and song, communion, Pastor Mark will be speaking, and then of course Sunday, Easter Day, we have our Sea of Galilee potluck breakfast at 9.30. We trust you'll come and enjoy that time of mingling with one another. That's followed by our Easter service at 10.30. The choir is going to sing one of our all-time favorites. And we're going to be, of course, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul speaks of the good news of your faith and love. Paul is looking at the power of the resurrection personally experienced. So I can't wait for next Sunday. Well, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 if you haven't already. Last week, we looked at our glory and joy in one another in the end of chapter 2, where we saw that Paul was expressing his amazing rapture-present view of others. Just the thought of them standing in the clouds in Jesus' presence when He returns was a powerful motivation and inspiration to Paul. We rarely hear people talking about that moment and that view these days, but clearly it is one of the gems in Scripture. And this week we're going to start in chapter 3. Last, uh, this, this is where we're going to see this topic of strengthening and encouraging one another. And we're going to see that this is the natural outflow of everything we've studied in chapter 2 in the past few weeks. If we are going to be like Paul, in that we have a deep friendship, a fond affection, and a sacrificial love for others in our church family and beyond... And if we are striving together to walk in a manner worthy of the God who saved us, and if all of that is supported by a rapture-present view of those around us, then it only makes sense that we will do everything possible to see each other strong and encouraged in this journey of faith. If our friendships are that real, if our faith truly sees the imminent reality of the rapture, then it is going to impact the way we come alongside one another 
and help each other run the race with endurance that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. I dare say that churches make or break based on their ability to truly strengthen and encourage each other in the faith. So let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. That's Paul speaking and his companions. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the inerrant Word of God. In it we believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us this morning. We know that the truths of life are eternal and they rest in the words of Scripture. Lord, do what only you can do to again open our eyes and give us the strength to obey what we come to understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's jump right into verse 1, and we'll walk our way through the text and learn together. It says, again, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Now, we're going to break down the outline of today's text into six points. First, we see the unbearable situation. Paul said, when we could endure it no longer. That phrase is repeated, as you saw at the start of verse 5. And once again, it communicates the depth of Paul's love and friendship with these people, the believers at Thessalonica. We see in this short passage that it pained him not to know how they were doing spiritually. He couldn't take it anymore. He had to do something about it. Think big picture with me. Right out the gate, this phrase pinpoints the bullseye of our application today with this question, how deeply do you and I care about the spiritual welfare of others in our church family? That is a piercing, guiding, inspiring question. It's a question that the text confronts us with, and we know that the answer is not a vague one. You and I will know that we care deeply about the spiritual which includes the physical and mental and emotional well-being of each other, if we are doing the things that Paul just outlined in chapter 2, and now here in chapter 3 as well. If you weren't with us the past three weeks, study chapter 2 and look at the long list of behaviors that proved 
that substantiated Paul's claim to have a deep care for other believers. God has, through Paul, painted a picture of the model church member in chapter 2. He has given us an example of what it truly looks like to bond with fellow believers for the sake of the gospel and the worthy glory of God. How deeply do you and I care about the spiritual welfare of others in our church family? Let that question guide us as we study these verses. Next we see number two, the trusted worker. Paul sends Timothy, who we know is his own son in the faith, to check on the Thessalonian believers. And he describes Timothy as our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Of course, we see first a deep connection in the use of the word brother. We tend in society today to casually throw around the term brother. But I have to say, I appreciate that term, especially when it's used meaningfully. And Paul is using it most affectionately and meaningfully here. And secondly, Paul not only recognizes Timothy as his fellow worker, but he took it all the way to the top, and he also recognized him as God's fellow worker or God's minister. This man is standing with God doing the work of the kingdom. He has partnered not just with Paul, but with infinitely more. He has partnered with God. He is connected with God Himself. He belongs to God. This man is a man of God. That's the kind of person you can trust to go and strengthen and encourage someone in their time of need. Are you and I trusted men and women of God? Lukewarm Christians rarely accomplish, let alone get sent out to do what Timothy was commissioned to do next. This points us to number three, the focused mission. Strengthen and encourage those believers in the faith. Let's first consider the word strengthen. This, this is where a little bit of word study proves beneficial. Strong's Greek dictionary defines the word this way, to set fast. That is literally to turn resolutely in a certain direction or figuratively to confirm to fix, to establish, to steadfastly set, to strengthen. Thayer's Greek Dictionary defines it this way, to make stable, to place firmly, to set fast, to fix something. Or secondly, to strengthen, to make firm, to render constant, or to confirm one's mind. All of these clearly indicate Timothy's assignment. Help those believers not to change their mind. Help them resolve to stay turned in this certain direction of the gospel. Help them to steadfastly set their course, to firmly place the feet of their faith on Jesus Christ. Harden them in their resolve to believe and obey. Strengthen them with the truth. Isn't that an awesome picture? of how believers are to come alongside each other. In a day where it's so easy to be judgmental 
to be critical, to be competitive in the church. We looked at a number of these wrong views of one another last week in our salt groups. In a day when it's so easy to do that, we should instead be strengthening each other. Who are you making strong in your church family right now? Who am I making strong? Who are you and I working out with in the faith? I love this analogy that Paul gives here. Every one of us should be a trainer to someone else, or at least a workout partner. And of course, we should be submitting ourselves to the training of others in the church, always learning. That's why I so love our Sunday school classes. I mean, to think about this point of strengthening, when they were talking about strengthening Throughout this video, look at the history of the church and men like Luther who were strong in their view of the inerrant Word of God. He said, in this, what? I stand. That is to be strong. I love our salt groups. I love to see what God is doing through Mike, through the men's Bible study, through Nancy and others in the ladies' Bible study, Enrico and Elisa in the youth group. Not to mention the many one-on-one -on -one relationships that are going on behind the scenes, both in and out of the church, with the clear purpose of simply building up one another. Show me a strengthening church, and I'll show you a happy church. A place where friends can be found, and the work of the kingdom is happening. I say that confidently because if we are going to strengthen others, it requires humility. That is a desire to see others excel, to see others do exceptionally well. Paul's going to hit on this in the next chapter when he urges the believers to excel still more and more. Pride wants self to excel, self to be exalted over others. But strengthening others cripples those bad attitudes. Strengthening others requires investment. That leaves little time to be self-pleasing. Strengthening requires attention. That leaves little time to be self-centered. Strengthening leaves little room for laziness and apathy. So many good things, spiritual things happen when we step up to the plate and embrace our calling, our mission, to strengthen those around us, to give them the spiritual muscles that they need to do what is right and to keep their faith in God when the going gets toughest. The church rises and falls. The local church rises and falls on its ability to truly strengthen each other. So how do you do that? Well, again, for starters, work with the huge list of behaviors and attitudes listed in chapter 2. That is an incredible resource. Here are some additional verses that instruct us on strengthening others. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, that is the strengthening, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace, that is divine strength to those who hear. What about Romans 14, 19? So then, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That is such a quick and easy filter test for us. 
Will saying this or doing this promote peace or strife? Will it build up or will it tear down? Romans 15, 1-7 is an incredible line of thought on this. This is a longer text. So I put it on the screen. It says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. You know, sometimes this stuff is so straightforward. I feel like I hardly even need to preach on it. Just read these words. If we look at that phrase backwards, it's saying, just pleasing oneself strengthens no one else. Verse 2 goes on to say, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, that is, his building up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement, there's today's combo right there, of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Ministering the Scriptures to others strengthens and encourages them. A timely shared verse is powerful. Verse 5 goes on to say, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, there's where we recognize that it's not actually us doing the work of perseverance, of strengthening and encouragement. It's actually God through us. May He grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. If you and I want to strengthen others, how about starting at the heart level with accepting one another in Christ Jesus? We know well that proud rejection, haughtiness, superiority, resistance, strife, looking down, weakens others. It saps the muscle from their spiritual body. Paul says in such simple terms, accept one another. And it wasn't just an accept them just enough to say you did it. He said, accept them just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. That's when we know we'll have done, we've done it right or that we have done it enough. When we've done it like Christ Jesus did for us. That is awesome. These are big-time truths. And we are just scratching the surface in a few verses here. A quick concordance search, a Bible concordance search of the word strengthen and build up of edify or edification, etc., will reveal a wealth of instruction on how we go about strengthening each other. That would be an excellent daily devotion for all of us to have at some point this week. Now the next word Paul gives, he says, encourage them. Encourage them. Strong's Dictionary defines it this way, to call near. That is, invite, invoke, by imploration, exhortation, consolation, 
to beseech, to call for, to be of good comfort, to desire, to give exhortation, to entreat, to pray for them. Thayer's Dictionary defines it this way. I love this. To call to one side. To call for, to summon, to address, to speak to them, to call, to call upon, which may be done in the way of exhortation, entreaty, comfort, instruction, etc. We see that this word encourage is actually closely related to the word strengthen, in that it involves speaking truth. It involves communication and exhortation. Only this word is personal. There's a sense of letting someone come close to you, to come by your side so that you can comfort them, encourage them. The antonyms of encourage and strengthen also speak volumes. It means don't discourage others. Don't be a pain to them. That alone is enough to keep us busy for a while. Quite the contrary, we are called to relieve the pain that others are bearing. We are called to infuse them with courage, a sense of hope, a positive view of the path forward, a vision for making it to the other side, a reminder that there is a reward, there is a Savior, there is grace. God's mercies are new every morning. Listen to these encouraging scriptures. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Some translations say he will never allow the righteous to be moved. This is echoed in the New Testament in 1 Peter 5, 7, a verse that we quote often. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Speaking of Jesus. Here's some of the last words of Moses to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 31.8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Back in the New Testament, John 16.33, Jesus himself said, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. There's the encouragement. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. As I read through many verses on encouragement and hope and peace and not fearing, etc., here is a lesson and a warning that comes through loud and clear in the Scriptures. It is not you or me that does the encouraging. We saw this a few moments ago. Where in the scriptures do we read the writer saying, you can lean on me. I'll be there for you. Tell me all about your troubles. I have a very hard time finding that type of counsel actually. It is easy to innocently make that mistake. But that is a burden that God has not called or equipped us to accomplish in its truest sense. The message is this. 
you can lean on God. He will be there for you always. You can tell him all your troubles, and he will hear. That is the message of Scripture. We are reminded that the encourager is a messenger. They are a conduit of truth and hope and encouragement. And what a privilege it is to be that messenger to someone in their time of need. How deeply we appreciate those messengers when they've come to us in our dark hours. The next thing we learn about, about the mission is the necessity of balance. Not that it's always a perfect 50-50 split, but that both strengthening and encouragement are necessary. We saw this applied back in chapter 2. We see here that it is possible to strengthen others, but not encourage them. Perhaps that's why Paul specified both to Timothy. It is possible to strengthen people, but not truly encourage them. As Jude Helland would say, that sounds a lot like the Marines. It's easy to teach and exhort and demand and charge all of those words that we looked at a few weeks ago, but not to encourage. It's also an imbalance to encourage, but not strengthen. You can hear someone saying, I appreciate you telling me I can do it, but what I'd really appreciate is you just came over here and gave me a hand because I'm about to drop this. Can you picture that? Thank you for the encouragement, but can you tell me what I need to do to be strong in this situation? We need the balance of both strengthening and encouraging. Listen to these scriptures. This is, this is amazing. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, be strong and courageous. There's the courage, the encouragement. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, speaking of Israel's enemies, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Again, sometimes reminding others that God is with them and will never leave is just the strength and encouragement they need to hear. Nothing flowery, nothing super deep, nothing long, just the pure reminder, God is with you. Emmanuel is true today. Isaiah 41, verses 10 and 11. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you, surely. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be ashamed and dishonored. Those who contend you with you will be as nothing and will perish. Sometimes reminding others of the destiny of the wicked, the destiny of God's true and, and faithful enemies, not only prompts us not to go there, but it relieves us in knowing that the wicked will not prosper even though it looks like they are. The psalmist spoke often of this truth. This combination of strength and encouragement is also pictured beautifully in the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, 
The one will lift up his companion. That is the strengthening and the encouraging in action. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Woe to the individual. Woe to the church family where there is not another to lift them up. And yet what blessing, what beauty, what deep camaraderie in Christ we find when there is someone standing there, coming alongside, embracing you, lifting you and me up. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. There's the strengthening to action. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. That is the 21st reminder, 21st century reminder, that live stream is fantastic, but don't let it replace going to church. If you can help it, beware that habit, the writer of Hebrews says. He goes on to say, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, there's again that rapture-present view of others. Isn't the Scripture amazing? One writer affirming and stating the same thing as the other writers. Scripture affirming Scripture. Scripture emphasizing Scripture. Back in our text for today, look at the next phrase at the start of verse 3. So that... Now, if you were with us last week, that phrase should ring a bell, right? So that we see some grand purpose here. And by the way, someone came to me last week after this service and said, just so you know, my Bible doesn't say so that or for those reasons in verses 12 and 13. That is a very good point. Let me take this opportunity to encourage everyone to get a copy of the inspired translation as soon as possible. Um, you know I'm kidding. It's the Word of God that is inspired. Amen? Amen. And it is best preserved in the NASB. Amen? Okay, just kidding again. Can we, take just, can we take just a second to talk about translations? I've already dug a hole, so let me at least try to crawl out. Both Pastor Mark and I preach from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, simply because our humble and personal understanding is that it's the best translation for word-by-word study of the Scriptures. That is just our personal opinion and that of many pastors and theologians that we happen to hold in high regard. So what should we do in our church family? Well, I, I'd propose this very simple path forward. If, a re- if reading a different translation distracts and frustrates you during the sermons, then consider getting a copy of the NASB. For others, myself included, I actually enjoy reading from something like the ESV or the King James, etc., so that it engages my mind when Pastor Mark is preaching. It helps me to compare and contrast word usages. It gives me a wider perspective of the meaning and intent of the text as a whole. So do what's best for you. It's that simple. And if you'd like to know more on this subject, a book that was very helpful to me 
maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I, I believe this was recommended to me by Nathan Waldock and, or Caleb Succo, is the book One Bible Only, question mark. It is by uh, Beecham and Bowder, One Bible Only. So if you'd like to know more on the subject, that is a short but powerful read on the subject of translations. So in regards to these verses that we're looking at, some translations don't have the so that or the for this reason. Some just say so or that. Some say, as in your, some of your Bibles here this morning, for this cause. And, but some don't have any of those words in those positions. So here's the point. They all mean the same thing. They are actually saying the same thing. Even if the so that isn't there, a careful contextual study will reveal that it is clearly implied. We just have to engage more thoughtfully with the text to understand that the purpose is now being stated. The effect of the cause is now being stated, etc. So again, this is why I find it so helpful to study from more than one good translation. I usually have at least three open when I'm, when I'm preparing for Sunday mornings. So verse 3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Why did Paul send Timothy to strengthen and encourage the believers? So that they would not be disturbed by his suffering and their suffering. Remember, this was a persecuted church that Paul was writing to. The King James and the ESV say, so that they would not be moved by the afflictions. We see this relating back to the word strengthen. And that word afflictions is an interesting one. The Greek word thlipsis refers to pressures, burdens, troubles, tribulations. I don't know a person in this room who isn't carrying some of those around. In context, we specifically know that Paul is referring to persecution for faith. But there was more than just being sent to jail here. All true followers of Christ experience pressures. Some of you are nodding your heads. All true passionate followers of Christ experience burdens and afflictions, trials that come from following Christ and walking away from the world. The world will take it personally when you and I walk away from it, from them, etc. And those pressures may even reach the point of persecution. Paul was concerned that the believers would be disturbed or moved by these hardships. Think back to the definitions of strengthen and encourage. Paul was concerned that the opposites of those would happen, that the believers would become unstable. They would lose their footing, their spiritual footing. They might be softened. They might start to change their mind and then change their direction. We saw that in Sunday school. Church history, so vital to observe. Paul feared that they might become weak, and discouraged. His mission for Timothy was to strengthen and encourage them so that they would not be disturbed or moved in their commitment to Christ. And Paul continues now to give the reasons for not being weakened or discouraged by trials. He says, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. 
For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Here we have number four, the thorough warning. As they say, perspective is everything. If we see it wrong, we think it wrong. If we think it wrong, we do it wrong. If we do it wrong, we get wrong results. Paul succinctly reminds these believers and us that they are destined for a world-inflicted pressure and trouble and affliction that comes with following Christ. He said, you know this. We told you this. We kept telling you in advance that this was going to happen, and it happened as you know. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen carefully and understand. Speaking that message is part of strengthening and encouraging one another. You understanding that? Speaking the message of suffering for Christ, the certainty of affliction and pressure and burden for doing what is right for Christ, sharing that message is part of strengthening and encouraging others. Sadly, I fear that this message is largely missing in Christian circles. Picture it. A relationship with someone goes south because someone spoke the truth in love. They refused to engage in dishonest business. They refused to cheat. They refused to lie over something. Maybe they simply told people they were a Christian. You fill in the blank. Name the situation. Here's the counsel they usually get. I'm so sorry. I wish that didn't happen to you. This is so terrible. I can't believe they did that. You didn't deserve this. Lord, let's, let's pray. Lord, help this to go away. Is that what Paul said? No. He said, welcome to your destiny. Told you so. Told you more than once. Look who's right. You know it. Look at the verse. That's exactly what he says. It is a Rogers translation, but that's exactly what he says. Where is that firm but loving counsel, strengthening and encouraging in the body of Christ today? Where is the bold message, welcome to being a follower of Christ? Where is the gentle message, Christ understands? He has been there. This is your calling. You will make it by grace. Doing what is right will be worth it when Jesus comes and you find yourself standing in His presence. Oh, it will be worth it all. If you and I not only want to be encouraged, but to encourage and strengthen others, we need to know and speak the whole truth. Paul spoke the entirety of the message. What an example for us today. Verse 5. He goes on to say, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, he's repeating verse 1, there's a little bookend here, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. Number five, there is the caring inquiry. 
That is care in action. Can we stop right there and pick up a 10-pound, 24-karat gold nugget of truth application? Don't think too hard on this one or we'll miss it. One of the evidences that we truly care, one of the proofs that we have a, a fond affection and a deep bond and a genuine concern for the spiritual welfare of those around us is that we ask them how they're doing. Boom! That would be the place for the mic drop, right? You mean, like, talk to them about spiritual things and ask them how it's going? You mean, like, pick up the phone and ask them how their walk with God is going or is doing? Isn't that a little, what word comes to mind? Awkward? I mean, that's really getting into somebody's personal space bubble, don't you think? Paul would have crushed that bubble. A person might say, yes, but I prefer to mind my own business. No, that person does not care. I'm just a messenger. Just a messenger. Friends, I'm a pastor, and it's not easy for me to pick up the phone and walk up to that person, meet them for coffee, and ask, how are you doing in your walk with God? I just want you to know I care. But I know I need to do that. That's how we strengthen and encourage one another. May I suggest that it's hard and awkward for us to do that because we don't practice it often enough? I mean, this is not rocket science. We just don't practice it often enough. And dare I say, because at the root of it, hear me now, we don't have a close enough, fond enough, deep enough, humble enough, caring enough relationship to warrant the inquiry. Paul didn't just come out of right field and ask, are you reading your Bible every day for at least five minutes? He didn't come up to somebody at trial and say, hey, where's your faith? Don't you know God's right here? Let me quote some verses at you. No, quite the contrary. Paul earned the right to find out about their faith, he says. And he didn't earn it overnight. Actually, he did. He labored day and night. But you know what I mean. It took time. It took sacrifice. It took communication. It took investment. It took truth. And over time, Paul and Timothy earned the right to strengthen and encourage others in their faith. We see here the caring inquiry. Our last point, point six, is in the rest of the verse. Why did Paul inquire? For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Point six, the tempter danger. For this reason for fear. We don't hear those words out of the Apostle Paul's mouth very often, and he wasn't stating them carelessly here. Paul wasn't just a super busy Christian. He was a man on a mission, and he knew exactly what God had called him to. He knew the costs. He knew the enemy, and he knew the danger both for himself and for others. And as we noted, 
he also knew his brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have moments of weakness, sometimes seasons of weakness. And for some, it's even worse than that. It's infinitely worse than that. The seed of the word never took deep root in the first place, and it was snatched away. The individual never knew Christ and was never known by Christ from the beginning. Paul feared that. He feared that the testing of their faith might prove that there to be no faith at all. Whatever level of danger present in both the unbeliever and the believer, Paul was agonizingly concerned that the tempter might have tempted them and that his labor and their faith would be in vain. As I think Graham mentioned earlier, if you haven't read the Waldock's missionary, from this past, uh, missionary letter from this past week yet, this week is a good time to read it. I think there might be copies out in the foyer or Graham can email a copy to you. Their church in that country that he is in is undergoing some fierce spiritual warfare, true persecution. People are being kicked out of their homes for being Christians. People are losing their jobs. People are being attacked for, for being Christians. Nathan and his missionary comrade are watching some of the believers in their church stay and some walk away and renounce the faith including some lead church leadership. Paul understood that the souls of people were in the balance. He feared that his labor and their faith might be worthless, of no lasting effect, in vain. How many of you have noticed the parallel between this text and Palm Sunday? God has not put us here on accident. And it wasn't my great planning either. I didn't see this till two or three weeks ago. The crowds in Jesus' time bowed and worshipped and celebrated Jesus one week and crucified him the next. That's what you call labor and faith in vain. Now, of course, the crowds who were cheering crucify him were likely the worst of the worst. They were the political leaders. They were the religious opponents of Jesus. They were the mob crowd, the rabble-rousers, etc. But even Peter denied Christ. Most of the disciples could not be found. By and large, the masses who worshipped with palm branches and their own coats on the ground and in song and dance, cheers of worship the week before, suddenly turned and hid themselves from the cross. Their faith found a vain moment. I fear that that happens every week in churches across America. Worship on Sunday, act like you don't know Him on Monday. Some of us have been there. We've all been there. When we counted the cost of doing what's right or speaking up in love for Christ, and we chose to remain silent. Like the disciple Peter, we hit rock bottom. 
But that's when we learned that Christ was still there waiting for us. In the worst of worst, He called us to His side. There's meaning in the definitions of these words. He called us to His side to come alongside Him. And He lifted us up and He encouraged us eternally and immeasurably. When we thought we were alone, we found our best friend in Jesus. And oh, what a friend He has proven to be. He died for our sins, the Scriptures say. So that if we repent and believe, if we will pick up our cross and follow Him, then we will be forgiven. I love the word pictures of Scripture, washed white as snow. We will be granted the promise of a home with Him in heaven forever. If Christ isn't your personal Savior, won't you believe and won't you follow Him today? Speak with me or another one here after the service. We would love to show you what the Bible says about life and death and eternal life. These are the greatest words most of us here have heard in our entire lives. These are no small matters. Jesus cares for us. This brings us back to our primary application of the day. How deeply do you and I care for the spiritual welfare of others in our church family and beyond, both for the non-believer and the believer? My church family, we cannot afford to miss our calling and Christ's example of truly encouraging and strengthening those around us. This mission, this Christian duty, this loving obligation should be imprinted in steel on the forefronts of our minds, just like the rapture present view that we looked at last week in chapter 2. Paul feared that some of those around him, particularly those in the church, might not be standing in the clouds in the presence of Jesus when he returned. He feared in a realistic, do-something-about-it way that both his labor and their faith would be in vain. So he said, Timothy, go and strengthen them. Encourage them. By the grace of God, may every one of us be that Timothy in our church and in our homes, in our community, and beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, words cannot even begin to describe the strength and encouragement you blessed us with the hope of forgiveness, the hope of heaven, the hope of daily grace and mercy. And our hope is founded on the promise of God. What greater hope could there be? You, Lord, have strengthened and encouraged us. May we take that same strength and encouragement and faithfully minister it to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.